We are continuing in our new study in the book of Malachi this morning. We started on a new book last week, uh, looked at the first five verses. Uh, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It is the last word that we get before Jesus comes on the scene uh, and the New Testament begins. And what we saw in particular of last week that the people that Malachi is writing to is they have seen in the past a great work that God has done. He had sent them into a period of discipline uh, and by going into exile, but that he has moved uh, through the events of history. He has brought them home to their own land. Uh, He has decreed that the time of discipline is over and he has restored them to as their own people. They've seen their temple rebuilt, the wall of the city of Jerusalem rebuilt, and so many good and wonderful things happen. And yet at the same time, they continue to face hardship. Uh, They continue to face threats both outside and inside. And they have this continuing sense of irrelevance as this little people in the middle of a big, vast empire, even still. So they are a people living in a situation of incompleteness, looking back on a redemptive event and looking forward to a hope more fully to come to bear. And so what we saw in particular, that God is moving here towards his people. He is reusing language of, of him being a father and the language of love. And that this book, as we are going to see this morning as we read it in just a second, it has some very hard things to say and says them in some very creatively hard ways in order to get his people's attention. Uh, but everything he is doing, he is moving towards his people out of love as a good father. And that this continuous pursuit of them, even in rebuke, is actually one of the special privileges they have of being God's people. This is a fairly long section. The, this, the letter is broken up into distinct sections that are all addressing particular topics. And so this is all one big uh, section, particularly focusing on worship and the priesthood. So with all that being said, let's go to God's word and read it. This is Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9. This is God's word. As a son honors his father and a servant his master, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present, present that to your governor, and will he accept you and show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. 
But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no word was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me go before the Lord and pray before uh, we begin. Dear Father, we all need your spirit if we are to hear what you have to say to us. We pray that you would use the preaching of this morning, that it would be true, that it would be good, that it would honor you. And it would lead us all uh, to the life that you have designed and you have laid out for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we see when we read this passage, that this is a, um, from one end to the other, is a long rebuke about worship uh, and the pollution of the priesthood in particular, but also the whole people as a group because of them. Um, And it's going to illustrate, I think, for us this point, is that we end up giving our best to the one whom we most respect. And we tend to most respect those who offer the most immediate consequences to us um, that that we might not want. We tend to respect the consequences and we tend to respect the ones who give them. And I want to use an illustration. This is one of my favorite illustrations. If you've read Tim Keller's book, The, the Meaning of Marriage, and no, I did not ask him if I could use this, but it is publicly in print, so I feel comfortable with that. Uh, he has this great illustration of he and his wife. Uh, they planted a church uh, in New York City, and when they planted the church, then he and his wife together, they agreed that in order to get a work like this off the ground, it takes a lot of work. And it is going to take a few years of extra time that is put into the labor. And so for three years, then he's going to be gone more than he ordinarily would. And that this is going to be a sacrifice that they are willing to make together. And you can probably already predict where this is going to go. Three years came and three years went and the work habits didn't really change. And she would come to him and say... You know, we made an agreement 
that after three years that you were going to dial back the work and we were going to resume some other things, would say, yep, we're almost there, a few months, and that's going to happen. And that would go, and that would go, and that would go. Until one day, he comes home, shows up um, on the sidewalk. This is New York, so they're in an apartment, and hears a smashing sound coming from their apartment. And he looks up and sees his wife is sitting on the ground with all of their wedding china surrounded, surrounding her, and a big hammer. And she is smashing dishes from their wedding next to her. There are pieces everywhere. And so obviously thinking that she's had a nervous breakdown, goes up and saying, what in the world is going on? And she says, I'm not losing it at all. I keep telling you, and you are not hearing me, and maybe with this grand gesture, you're going to get the point. You're going to get the point that this is actually important and that there actually are consequences to disdaining this relationship. There might not be as immediate consequences as not getting work done um, that needs to be done on this church plant, but there are consequences just the same. And it turns out she was perfectly calm and actually did not smash anything that was important. She only smashed the ones where other dishes in the set were already broken. So it was a very calculated, holy temper tantrum uh, that you are welcome to try in your own marriage if you would like. I would like to hear how that goes. Um, But it illustrates a great point, and I'm using it in a different way than he did, but we tend to respect those that have the most immediate consequences. And it is very easy to go about our lives, going to this and that, to whatever has the most immediate stress, the most tangible consequences, and to potentially neglect other things that are very, very important. And it is actually out of love when we hear that, and when we are brought to our senses, and we can be able to see things clearly. And I think that is what is going on here in this letter from Malachi, where God, as a father, of affirming his love for this people, is now through his prophet Malachi, he is calling them to wake up and to pay attention. That despite all of these other things that are stressful and that are difficult, that this relationship really matters. It really matters. Worship, true, good, and full worship to God himself. And what we're going to see is that there is, there is actually going to, there's some very good news in this, in this prophecy that we are going to see. But above all, God is making an assertion here to them and to us that he is the king. He is the great king over all the earth, and he will end up receiving and commanding respect from his people. I've got three points here we're going to look at. And the word gift is not in here in any way, but I'm phrasing them in terms of gift. And I'm getting this from the loving and familial language that God is using. That he actually is going to give them a gift of rebuke. Then he is going to give them a gift of reconciliation. And at the end, he is going to give them a gift of responsibility for them to lay out, to work out in their own lives as well. So let's look at these. Let's start with the rebuke. And this is... In a lot of ways, we're just going to march through this passage and look at what it says. 
So first, what are, what are the people doing? I'm going to start thinking about the people as a whole, uh, the, and then we're going to look at the priests second. And they are both relevant here. But first, looking at the people as a whole, what are they doing that has so offended God that would prompt this long message to them? And we see here in verses 7 and 8 that they are offering polluted food upon the altar, which in one way they are worshiping. And this is a little bit different from the time before exile, where they, they're not obviously setting up temples to other gods. They're still worshiping. They're worshiping on the altar, but they're worshiping things that are not that great. They're worshiping animals that are blind or lame, uh, that might not be useful in some other way. And they are keeping the good things for themselves. And if you look at the book of Leviticus, if you've read it, the third verse in the whole letter says, when you make an offering to me, it has to be an offering without blemish. It has to be a perfect offering, the best of the group that is to be offered. So in the front, this is, um, even though it might seem like they're doing a good thing by worshiping, they are actually disregarding one of the primary commands that God had given them about how to worship. They're keeping the good for themselves. They're only offering something in a half-hearted way. And then in verse 13, it says something interesting. They're even complaining. Like they're saying, what a weariness this is to come before God and to do this again and again and again. It's just so much work and it's so tiring and I'm not getting a lot out of it. Uh, Worship is just too taxing. Now, why are they doing this? Like what would possess someone to treat God this way? And if we look in verses 7 and 12, particularly through the leadership of of the priesthood, then he says this interesting phrase. You're saying that the Lord's table may be despised. It's almost like you have permission to do this. That when you come in here, there's, God doesn't care. Like you can do whatever you want. You can tribute it. You can treat it as flippantly as you would like. Um, and what we see here is that the problem here is not necessarily with the animals themselves even though uh, they're disregarding that commandment. And the problem is not with God just being overly picky, but that it comes from something much bigger than that, and that their actual respect for God is not there. They're saying he doesn't care, and that he's not, he's not, it's not important. You should not feel impor- um, that it's important to worship in this way when you go before God into his house. And he uses this great illustration Uh, In verse 8, he says, you won't even treat the governor this way. Like they had a governor from Persia. And this is just, this is a great illustration. If we want um, a kind of a a litmus test with how much this is true, like try to treat your boss this way and see what happens. Try to treat the IRS this way and see what happens. Try to treat the police this way and see what happens. And that's a revealing test to see who is the most respected and who is the most important here to the people. And we see it's not God. What's the result of all this? Verse 12, God says that the reason why this is such a big deal is because his name is being profaned from the nations. That God's purposes through his people from beginning to end, it is not just for their own personal holiness, 
but the way they do life together actually shows how wonderful, how majestic the person and the character and the name of God is. They have a mission to display the importance of God to all of them around them. And if by their own lives that respect is not there, what do we think that that says? What do we think that says about God? Is this somebody that is actually has an, should have an impact in your life at all? And his answer is no. Out of concern for the nations, he says, my name cannot be profaned like this. It cannot go on. This is bad for everybody. And what is God's response? After these repeated assertions of telling them that their offerings are not good, he's saying you are offering them in vain. And in fact, if you want to, in this situation, if you want to do something really helpful, why don't you just go shut the temple doors so that nobody can come in? It's like if we said you come and like, those doors out front, they're closed. Nobody can come in. At least we're clear on where we stand. At least God's name is not muddled. At least the people aren't doing something that they're hoping they're going to get some good out of when there is none. And then he says in this verse, which you caught him in chapter 2, verse 3, he actually says to the priests in particular, we'll rub dung on your faces. How about that for a direct insult? And not only, I think, what does God do? Is he just like trying to be demeaning here? I think he is smashing dishes. And I think he is saying, you have to get this. You have to understand how important this is. And he is, he is, and you got to keep in mind, if you were a priest, like this is, these would have been the insides of an animal that were to be taken out of the temple and burned. So it's not just um, the dirtiness of it, but there's an uncleanness of this. It's like, based on this behavior, you should be outside and considered unclean and not fit to come in. And that is all from we can see everybody in the community participating in this way. But if you notice, the people who get this again and again and again, the instructions, are the priests. It is the people who are leading the people who God points out. And he particularly calls, he calls out um, in a unique and particular way. And I know... Leadership is a hard thing, and often, you know, we don't, none of us like submitting any kind of language of submission, any kind of leadership, anything like that. Um, and we have a hard time with those passages in the Bible. But on the other hand, we, we get this view here, um, as we do in many other places. God is very, very hard on his leaders, on the shepherds of Israel, those that are leading the people astray. That there is a particular importance here that the leadership, that people are led in truth before God, that the worship is genuine, that the respect is given to his name. Because if they are not led in that way, then it won't be important. The priests, it is, I will say, this has been a, a hard and a soul-searching week, uh, meditating on this passage and being tasked with preaching the word again and again and again to be able to read these things. And what is it like to actually come in here, not as just something to do that we have to do every week, but there is actually something important here uh, that is greatly at stake in our worship. What does this mean for us? There's the barrage. 
That's the, that's the rebuke um, that God gives to His people. But we're obviously, we're not in the same situation anymore. We come in here to worship and we don't bring animals and we don't sacrifice. Uh, so we can say, how does this have any bearing on us at all? And we read Hebrews 13 earlier and we were given a few things that uh, true and proper worship is worship in praise and is in thanksgiving. And we can, as is inviting us to ask ourselves, um, do we respect God as the giver of all things? Is He good? Is He worthy of gathering before? Not just as a have to or under compulsion, but He is actually good. That He actually provides. That even the hard things that He brings, He is actually leading us to good. There's the verbal proclamation of His name we saw in Hebrews 13. And we can think about this to ourselves, that what do our words and our life actually say about God and who He is? When we talk about Him, um, when we talk about the church, when we talk about worship, is there a level of respect even in our voice? Is there a love for Him? Or is there an embarrassment or a dismissal of who He is, something that we don't, someone we don't really care to engage with. Um, Hebrews 13 said, you can worship by doing good. Are we eager to serve others? Are we eager to do good to those around us? Um, We might say something like, you know, we're not one of those legalistic churches, so it really doesn't care. Like, God doesn't care. He doesn't care what we do. Uh, Do anything that you would like to do. These These are the kinds of things that are true worship. And if we were the priesthood here in Malachi, we would have to answer no to almost every single one of them. This is a hard and is a good gift of rebuke. And there are times, the reason why we preach through every portion of Scripture is because we need the whole thing and the whole counsel of God. Sometimes we need a work of of comfort, and sometimes we need to see God smashing dishes to get our attention, that we actually might taken seriously for who he is. And where does that leave us? If we are to think about this, you know, we can examine our hearts and say, okay, um, not great now, but maybe I'll go out and I'll try doubly harder next time. Next week I'm going to come in here and it's going to be all different. Um, This is going to be a good week. Maybe for a little while. I think if we are truly honest with ourselves, then this is giving us it is opening our eyes to something that is, is both true and is necessary and is needed, but it is also so far beyond what we can actually put out. And that if we were left on our own to do this, if respect for God's name just came from us, from our words and, on, and our life, we would be toast and God's name would be sullied everywhere it goes, everywhere we go. So what do we do with this? Is there hope? This is where we get the gift of reconciliation. If you'll look at verse 11 with me, this is in the middle of a lot of darkness. This is a very curious and wonderful little verse. Uh, He had just finished in verse 10 saying, He will not accept these offerings from your hand. Then we get to verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place... Incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 
This is a curious little verse. And on one hand, this is God again refer into his people. He is affirming his commitment he has had from the beginning that despite the issues of his people, he will make it right in the end. And we can look at it on one way. It's like with or without you, this is going to happen. Like I'm not going to stop until every end of the earth. Um, my name is known clearly and it is enjoyed and it is worshiped. But it is also interesting that it's referring here in a curious time of praises being offered from one end, the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. And we see there is a veil being torn already, even before we get to the time of Jesus, that there is a no longer a separation between the Holy Land and the nations outside. And there is somehow no longer a separation between the priesthood and worshiping and all of the people in all places everywhere. There's no more difference in between Jew and Gentile anymore. So at the same time as God is impressing upon these people his commitment that I will do this, he is also giving us a little bit of a hint in how he is going to accomplish this. And how did he accomplish this? And that we have the benefit now as we are reading this and we are thinking of ourselves and we, we are being led to consider the greatness and the glory of God. We are doing this in a time of knowing how he would end up finishing that story and is through Jesus. And that is in Jesus, when his people were again and again and again rebellious and wandering and straying from him and selling his name, offering poor sacrifices, not just once, but throughout the whole history of his people. At the right time, he ended up sending his own son, who would bear the kind of ridicule that he is directing what the priest should get in this situation, who was sent outside of the camp, who bore reproach, for his people, so that he could present his rebellious, wayward people blameless in his own sight. He offered up, as we see in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, he offered up himself one a sacrifice, once a sacrifice, both the sacrifice and the high priest, so that he could atone for all sin for all the time, and he could sit down at the right hand of God the Father, welcoming people through him as sinful as they are, as impure and as mixed as their worship are. So instead of a poor priesthood, we have a new and great high priest. Instead of God saying, you should shut the doors to the temple and don't come in here anymore. He rips the veil in the Holy of Holies from top to bottom. So that not only that, but we can walk in as we are to the very presence of God. That you can only be in there without blemish yourself at all. Instead of giving, when we gave our worst, he gave us his very best in the form of his son. And instead of a t- continual rebuke to his people, prophet after prophet after prophet, he once offers a sacrifice for all time, making many righteous in his son. And this means that when we come into worship, God has not only atoned for past sins, he has also atoned for present sins. And he has also atoned for the ones in the future. We never get away from that. There is no way to exhaust what Jesus offered up. The one perfect offering that was given for all. 
for all time so that our worship would be made perfect in Christ. I want to make the point of this too. That is what God did. I want you to think about this, about the character behind this. And I want you to think about the last time you were offended by somebody. When you were offended by somebody last time, did you then turn and say, you know what? You offended me. But I'm going to declare to you that we are right. We are good. I'm going to make it right on my own. We don't do that. When we are offended, we retaliate. We say, no way. Until you offer an apology, until you something, there is no good here. But this is why this reconciliation is a gift. Because when all these things are true, when God's net, God is offended by our half-hearted worship, He takes the initiative and He makes it right Himself. He comes to us as the offended party and said, we are going to be good. I'm going to make a way so that you can be reconciled to me. Christ gives. He provides reconciliation for us as a gift between father and children so we could be right in his eyes. As the gift of reconciliation. But thirdly, there's a sense where that is curious in his own right because what's the first thing you would think about if that is, if that is the case? Like, it, it almost in a way, it sounds like it could be subsidized worship. Like, you know what? You just scared me in this letter. And now you said, okay, but never mind, everything's okay. Like, is this, what is this supposed to do in me? Does that mean that we can just walk in here and continue in half-hearted worship and no longer worry about it? Um, no longer worry about uh, what we do, uh, what God thinks. And so we also have here, this, there are some unique aspects of the promise that come through this rebuke. And that is, God's purposes have not gone away. And that His purposes with His people from beginning to end is still to make His name great among the nations. Now he does that through Jesus. He does that through repentance and faith, um, the gift of his son, the good news that goes out from his people and the testimony to him. But it has not gone away. It has not stopped. There remains to be a purpose for the people of God. We still have the call from this to worship God and that that worship matters. And that as our Father, he is after our hearts. But through worship... There is actually a grand vision here that is being fulfilled. And let's, if you just start with Malachi, if you start with this prophecy, you are a people who is, who is few, who is small in number, and who has no influence on this great empire. Um, and these mundane things that we do every single day, offering sacrifices, coming again to the temple again and again and again, it is hard to see how this matters. In any way. It is hard to see that there is a purpose behind what we do. It is just weary. And in a way, with this rebuke, God is actually coming to them and saying that these little things, even though there is not a tangible good that you might see that is going to come of this, these little things actually matter. It is through these little things that God is going to carry out his grand purposes with his people. 
that the participation, even in the mundane aspects of worship and service every day, and somehow that you might not see, actually contribute to this mission, to this glorious vision of from the rising of the east to the setting of the sun in the west, that there are people in every place who are offering good worship through Jesus and who are singing praises to his name. That the mundane things actually matter. But here, especially when we think about this in light of Jesus and that what he has done for his people and making them right before him and bringing them into his service, how much more so is the worship and the little things, the service, the doing good, all of these things we are called to, how much more do they matter? Those that have been presented before the throne of grace, good and perfect and holy, the beloved children of God, the ones that he is proud of, that he is working in, that he goes with, that carry his name. That is the same for us. There is actually good news in our worship when we gather together here in this building, even when we might not ever see the dividends that it pays. These little things, the service that nobody sees. You might feel like the most isolated person in the room with the least number of gifts, with the least glorious life, with the least opportunity. But the effect of all of this is that in Christ, that both matters and that that is effective. That God will use his people. There is meaning even into the mundane, everyday things of our lives. We could be jaded with ourselves over our own failures and think that we're not good enough. We could be totally discouraged with maybe even this body in this room. We might be totally discouraged that our gifts don't seem to to match up. We might not see any hope. But if Christ is on the throne, our perfect sacrifice who is sitting beside the throne of God, work finished, atonement made for, and directing all of the events of history to this end, then you have a place in this vision, and I have a place in this vision, that God is continuing his work through his people. And we know the end. The end is going to be worship from the east into the west. The name of God being known everywhere in every place. Our worship matters. And so what I want us to do from this is to think, to examine ourselves and our own worship, our own hearts, and then to return to Jesus as we do that. But when we do that, to remember his goodness and his purposes that he is working out, to take heart in even these little things, in our singing, in our worship, in our serving, in doing good, because they are good and they will be good until the end through him. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we come before you exposed when we consider the attitudes of our own hearts. And we're also thankful for the gift of Jesus you've given us. Father, we pray that you would tune our hearts that we might sing your praises. You would lead us to hear your words. That every, as the ways that we stray, that we would see the goodness of your throne and we would return to you. That we would experience the peace 
of Jesus that you offer. And that we would take heart, that we would serve you and worship you all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.